Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, O Lord. Come and take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and make them one with yours. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Alleluia! Christ is risen! Well done, well done. Well, the resurrection, what we have gathered here to celebrate this morning, if you think about it, can be a hard thing to believe. Have you ever sat there, and perhaps in some of your darker moments, or more rationally confident ones, I suppose it could go either way, begun to ponder this thing I've been told my whole life and just implicitly taken for granted It doesn't make much sense. Is it real? I mean, we've all been around death. It's as final as it gets. There is no reversal. Whether it's slow decline, a debilitating disease that you see a loved one going through, or an unexpected catastrophe, a car accident, for example, death is final. In our better moments, we might sit there bewildered like Jerry Cruncher in A Tale of Two Cities. You remember him? Recalled to life? Recalled to life. What? How is that possible? Around this time, each year, a number of people on TV and radio and newspapers and journals and social media and podcasts, often people with lots of letters after their name, will tell you that the resurrection did not happen. That Jesus did not, in fact, bodily rise from the grave, and that you and I would be foolish to go on believing it. Lots of people think that what we have gathered to celebrate this morning is, well, bunk. A made-up fairy tale. An increasing number of mythicists, as they are termed, are convinced that not only is the resurrection just story truth, that it didn't literally happen, but that Jesus himself did not exist, that the Jesus story is an allegory, a parable of the spiritual journey, that in fact what early Christians did was revive and appropriate long-standing myths about pagan gods who rose from the dead. Some of you may recall Timothy Freck's bestseller that came out around 2000, The Jesus Mysteries. Caught a lot of attention, advanced the idea that Jesus was invented by people who sought to revitalize the story story of Osiris Dionysius, a dying and rising God-man. Such writers and researchers voice and even flaunt that hard question about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. On top of that, there's new brain theory out there, research about how Christians and really any religious persons suspend a part of their brain in believing. They suspend the cognitive. We suspend rational judgment, that part of the brain through which we would analyze or have adjudication about something. Look, No one ever rises from the dead. No one who's dead comes back to life. So it is against this backdrop 
that I want to tell you about one of my Easter heroes. Do you all have Easter heroes? People who helped you recognize the reality and profundity of the resurrection, who made the resurrection believable, who made God believable. If we're using the Tale of Two Cities example again, we think of Sidney Carton, right? He's not the Easter hero I'm going to talk about, but he's such a rich character that displays the redemption affected by what? By offering up his life in substitution for his doppelganger, Charles Darnay. He helps to make stories of redemption believable, that they can and do, in fact, really happen. Now, my Easter hero, and I should say that I think, uh, I was recollecting this yesterday, I think it was an Easter sermon, oh, probably about a decade ago now, when I first started thinking of this as an Easter figure. For the preacher that morning, a mentor of mine, Chip Edgar in South Carolina, cast him similarly as an Easter hero, and it's funny that this figure now comes back to me around this time uh, each year. So, hat tip to Father Edgar. My hero's name is Puddleglum. And if you've heard of Puddleglum, you know that you meet him where? In the pages of the Silver Chair, which is the sixth book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Now, Puddleglum is a marsh wiggle, a rather gloomy breed of creature that is a cross between a human and a frog. Think Eeyore in terms of his general outlook on life. Here's the plot of the story in a nutshell. Puddle Glum, along with two children, Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole, are on a mission. They've been sent by Aslan to rescue Prince Rillian, the heir to the throne of Narnia, but they are trapped in an underground world called Underland, fittingly, which is ruled by the evil Emerald Witch. And there's this moment when they're in the witch's chamber that this queen of Underland uses all her powers to essentially brainwash them. She throws green magic dust on a fire. She begins strumming gently on a mandolin. Thrum, thrum, thrum. And it starts to bear a spell. In the course of this spell, she tells these four that they are very sick and that there is no land called Narnia. She's trying to beguile them into disbelieving their mission. In fact, she is trying to convince them that their understanding of reality is completely wrong. And as the enchantment deepens, the queen proceeds to tell them that a world where there is a sun is simply made up from the fact that they have seen lamps. And the idea of a lion named Aslan comes from the fact that they've seen little kitty cats and they wished that there were a better world. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, and certainly no Aslan, she proclaims. And then Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle, who is, as I say, a depressing and morose guy, yet always sort of fortified, uh, comes through in the clutch, decides that it is time to break the spell. So he gets up, and he steps on the fire with his bare, froggy foot. And let me tell you, as the book says, there is nothing less enchanting than the smell of a marsh wiggle's foot burning. <laughs> and the spell begins to break. And then we get Puddle Glum's great speech. And I think it's an Easter speech. 
He says, one word, ma'am, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, and I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always likes to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars, and Aslan himself, suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. So, thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we are leaving your court at once and setting out into the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's small loss if the world's as dull a place as you say. (laughs) Then Puddle Glum, of course, leads them out. And of course, there is an overland. And there is Narnia, and most importantly, there is Aslan. Friends, in these next few moments, I want to invite you to think with me about believing the resurrection. Not in some sort of an apologetic way, though that is important. But believing the resurrection in the sense of participating in it. In our gospel reading, we heard about how the women come to the tomb... The stone has been moved away, and two men in dazzling clothes rather pointedly say, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you come to seek the living one in a cemetery? He's not here, but he has risen. And the women remember Jesus' words, and they go and tell the apostles. They are the first evangelists. And what's the response when they tell the disciples? Verse 11 there in Luke chapter 24. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It seemed a fantasy, a daydream. This is the story of so many today. This is the mythicist. This is the rationalist. This is scholars. This is some of us in our most distressing moments. We live in the shadow of an awful spell. Could someone have beaten death? Could death really be gone? Is there life after death? Could the judgment I know I deserve for my wickedness really have fallen on someone else? And Jesus' resurrection says, yes. Oh, yes, it has. And it's even better than we thought. For we are not just invited out of a world of death, but will always be in the presence of the one who conquered, the one who redeemed, the victorious Christ himself. For many people, though, it does remain an idle tale. There is no overland. And yet, friends, the new life in us 
the resurrection life that we have received demands that we encourage their faith. They may become, like the apostles, skeptical at first, but then pivotal architects in building the kingdom of heaven. The new life we receive demands no concessions. Oh, so-and-so will never believe. I'm not going to even waste my time there. It's with this in mind that I wonder what kind of conversion needs to come over me and you in order to be willing to interact with truth seekers who are incredulous. The disciples are absolutely surprised. That is the dominant emotion conveyed in their responses in the gospel accounts. Pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's what comes out over and over again. Astonishment, fear, confusion. They're confused about what they are seeing and hearing. You can probably imagine this. When a big event happens, everything is abuzz, trying to figure out what happened. Relationships are formed in ways that you couldn't imagine. Did you hear about what happened in such and such a place? What do you make of it? I don't know, but uh, I want to talk to so-and-so who was there. People are brought into contact with those they would have never fathomed. And then once the dust settles, we often fall back into our routines and rhythms of life. The resurrection is a cataclysmic event that demands such reorientation and that carries us into new relationships, into new testimonies. It demands that we regularly interact with it or else it will become to us an idle tale, sterilized, safe, mastered. Easter is always a surprise, brothers and sisters. Easter is always good news. It dares to tell us things we didn't expect, things we weren't inclined to believe, things we couldn't understand, things we would have to suspend rational judgment for. Easter is always a surprise, whether in celebrating this day each year, that death has indeed been vanquished, or in the sudden surges of God's grace in your daily lives that catches you unawares, overturning tragedy in your own lives and in the world at large. For what Easter is, ultimately, is the future breaking into the present. When Jesus arose on Easter morning, a new world rose with him, a world that brings abundant life, that brings healing, that brings restoration. Think with me about this for a moment. The future is coming into the present. And as a result, there's all kinds of implications. Something else came into the world that first Easter morning. Forgiveness of sin. An end to sin and death. With Christ rising came the forgiveness of sin. When he comes out of the grave that Easter morning, he brings the final verdict on the fact of our sinfulness, which is, your sin is not accounted to you anymore. You are forgiven. And not just forgiveness that comes to us, but our ability to forgive one another. Think about it. To forgive someone is to die for, to yourself, is it not? And along with forgiveness of sin comes joy. Joy comes out of the grave too. Joy is the conscious awareness that God's will cannot be thwarted. 
And proof of that came when Jesus came out of the grave that Easter morning. When Jesus rose, it was proof that God's purposes can never ultimately be thwarted. Joy is a gift that comes to God's people on Easter morning. And heaven, God's domain, God's kingdom, comes with Jesus' resurrection that morning. As Tom Wright says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That is what we are a part of. That, friends, is our identity. For as Pope John Paul II memorably proclaimed, we are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. And Easter people regularly interact with the resurrection. As the episode of Peter and John and Solomon's portico, do you remember that? In early Acts, Peter and John, they are proclaiming the resurrection day after day. Easter people preach the resurrection more than one day a year. We proclaim it all the time, both in word and in the comportment of our lives. Or... It will become to us an idle tale, a silly fantasy, if we seal it off, if we keep it safe, if we keep it in the realm of abstract belief. So back to Puddleglum. We find ourselves told from every side, from scientists and philosophers, from journalists, yes, and even clergy. We're battered with the message that we cannot believe the resurrection. We live in a world of darkness where people don't want to believe it. They find that they can't believe it. But listen to this. If you abandon the reality that Jesus rose from the dead, face it, you abandon life. You abandon the hope of healing. You abandon forgiveness. You abandon joy. You choose to live in the underworld and not in Narnia, where the grass is green and the wind blows and the sky is blue and the sun is warm on your face. For those of you this morning who find yourself filled with questions, know this. Christianity is not about remembering a hero, but meeting a resurrected man who still lives today, who brings life who offers forgiveness, who opens the way for true, lasting joy. Have you encountered, have you been converted to this Christ? God, through the resurrection, challenges us again to see this as the defining story of the cosmos and not as we are inclined to see human history as the paradigm. If you take human history teeming with wars and violence, squalor and pain, poverty, tragedy, death. Easter seems a fairy tale exception. But as Philip Yancey once famously said, if I take Easter as the starting point, as the one incontrovertible fact about how God treats those whom he loves, then human history becomes the contradiction. And Easter Resurrection, new life, forgiveness of sin, joy, a preview of ultimate reality. 
Remember Palogalam's great speech, his Easter speech. The children find themselves being lulled into disbelief that Aslan, the Christ figure, doesn't really exist, that life is all we can see here in front of us. It kills their hope. It alters their very identity and outlook, and it would have brought an end to their mission from Aslan. But then Palogalam rises up and testifies to a world beyond this though they may not be able to see it now. Belief is contagious, and the others are won over. That is what we are called to do. We are called to creatively and boldly bear witness to what we know to be truth, that Christ has risen, and we with him, though we may never have seen the resurrected Christ ourselves. Brothers and sisters, there is forgiveness of sin. There is a resurrection. There is another world. Another world where to think back on that line from Ann Porter's poem that we heard on Good Friday, a world where once we're within her borders, death will hunt us in vain. And most importantly, there is a Savior who has conquered death by death, and he invites us into new life, into joy, real, lasting joy, and to run and tell others about it. For Christ is indeed risen. Amen. Amen.